You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and also the creative editor there. Today I have with me Lynn Stoller and Sonam Balani, co-founders of Parachute. Welcome to the show, you both. Thanks Thanks for having us. I'm happy to have you here. We got introduced by an old friend of mine, Zachary Caceres, who uh, he's been working on cities and thinking about cities and environments for startups to be successful. He just had a piece at A16Z too. So I saw him say, RIP my inbox. Good for you, Zach. (laughs) Yeah, I um, actually was emailing with Zach. And after the A16Z piece came out, he was like, I'm so sorry. My inbox is absolutely flooded. I was like, you go. That's a huge win. Like, it's a good problem to have. I think so, too. I was really happy to see him be successful. He's long been one of the brightest people I know. Um, And I'm happy to see him focus on cities. And that opens me up to this first question here of grounding this conversation. Why cities? There's so many different skills you could be focused on, both uh, in terms of governance. It could be counties. It could be states. The UN level. Why cities? Why should people be thinking this way? I'll start with this one. I've spent my entire career on cities, so I'm obviously biased. (laughs) But I I was born in Mumbai, which is one of the largest cities in the world. You know, grew up in Chicago and now live in New York City, um, also one of the largest cities in the world. Right. And it's not you know, it's a story about numbers more than anything else. The world is urbanizing. There are about four point two billion people who live in cities today. That number is going to go up to about 6.7 billion people by 2050, right? And to accommodate that growth, we've got to get it right. And we'll obviously get into that discussion later on in the podcast. But, you know, I think those sheer numbers in and of themselves are um, one of the main driving factors of our focus on cities. The second is around um, just infrastructure systems, right? So about 75% of the urban infrastructure of 2050 is yet to be built. We see that as a huge market opportunity, as well as a huge policy opportunity to get get it right. So that we're getting up to those that 6.7 billion number, we're building systems that improve humanity because the vast majority of the human race is living in cities. And then the other piece, particularly as it relates to climate, is that you know, cities are about 3%, occupy about 3% of the land mass of Earth, which uh, I think when I say that to people, they find very surprising. But Earth is very big. And yet they contribute to over two thirds of emissions, GHG emissions that are in our atmosphere. So if we're about to do something, you know, we've got to start at that core unit um, and focus on cities. And it's really gratifying, you know, again, having worked in this space for a long time, that over 6,000 cities around the world now have climate action plans. Cities globally spend about $380 billion a year on climate action, and that's just today. So all of those numbers, all of those trend lines, you know, in the startup space, we talk about hockey sticks, like that is happening in cities as, as a unit of both governance as well as investment. On my end, you know, Sonam and I have very different backgrounds. Sonam came from an infrastructure background and um, I came from a health background. I had no intention, quite frankly, interest of working in climate originally. I was working in public health and then ended up transitioning to this climate health intersection when I started to see climate impacting my work and, you know, the problems that I was working on, the solutions I was trying to work on to help solve those problems. And 
overwhelmingly, you know, when you take a look at climate from the health perspective, the impacts are so, so local, right? I was working at the UCLA Center for Healthy Climate Solutions, and um, we would see block to block, like not even zip code to zip code or, you know, city to city, block to block within a city, we would see different rates of morbidity and mortality, or, you know, basically different um, degrees of impact because of climate change threats. And so to me, I don't think that it's fair to expect the federal or state government to be able to address all of those really local needs and all of the types of um, solutions that we need, because like local people understand their impacts and how they want to solve for them. So that's why cities. Yeah, well, which is one other point on what Lynn just mentioned, right? Rubber hits the road in cities. The federal government generally shuffles money around and comes up with big policies and passes huge legislation like the infrastructure bill or the IRA more recently. All of that money then trickles down into cities. Actually, the White House today is hosting something called the Accelerating Infrastructure Summit. And 90% of the federal dollars are ultimately executed uh, by states and local governments, right? Municipalities. And not only is that important in terms of how projects get done and ultimately financed, but also rubber hits the road in cities, right? When you walk out of your door, if your street is flooded, that is a city problem. When you get on the subway and if it takes you two hours to get from point A to point B, that is a city problem, right? Your federal government, yes, it can help with money, but it cannot build those infrastructure projects that are hyperlocal. I am so sympathetic to that argument, almost to the point of bias. I favor subsidiarity wherever possible. Things should be at the most local scale possible, Mm -hmm. um, wherever that may be. I also have this contrary impulse, though, where in Seattle, where I live, the city council will often make large declarative statements about issues that are much greater than the city level. And I'm like, can't you just make sure there's no needles in the parks? Like, like, can you just make sure that things are clean and like broadly work? Like, should you really be working on climate change if you can't do the most basic things a city should be expected to do? So I have a lot of anger when I experience my city as uh, being grandiose or too big. Am I am I wrong? Or is there a part of that that is not (laughs) terrible? We actually visited Seattle as a part of Parachute's first season, and I was actually just there a few weeks ago, and I hadn't been since I was in high school, right? And to date myself, that was, you know, almost 15, 20 years ago. (laughs) And I will say, you know, I think as much as we have qualms about how sometimes things don't work in our very hyper-local urban environments, on a grander scale, you have it better than like 90% of the world, right? And I will say in Seattle in particular, you know, your government passed a sales tax to fund the expansion of transit systems across the Seattle Bellevue region. Oh, I got thoughts um, on this. You just set me up. Thoughts. I got stuff to say. <laughs> um, and it has built a lot of housing along those new lines, right? I think that there's a huge question of affordability of that housing. In Seattle, you have affordability requirements, but developers can build elsewhere, which defeats the point of affordability requirements, right? So there's a lot of nuances to this discussion. But yeah, sometimes we think that we don't have it. <laughs> we don't have it great. And yeah, that's often true. But but I think we've got to look at the the big picture here in terms of some of the global progress that is happening in this space. And Ross, I'm, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on all this, but I just really quickly will say that, you know, I, I really sympathize with this experience of like, oh, you know, like, there's people, you know, using drugs, in like, visibly, you know, in cities, let's say, um, I spend a lot of my time in the SF Bay area. And that's, you know, something that we deal with. And 
it feels like, you know, we should be addressing some of these issues before we get to the like, oh, you know, we as a city are going to solve climate change. And um, I think that that's part of the reason that Parachute tends to focus on solutions that actually make our cities more beautiful and livable and resilient to climate change along the way. So it's not necessarily about like, oh, how can we as one city, you know, single-handedly mitigate 0.0001% of, you know, GHG emissions, right? Because I feel like that makes climate solutions feel like this, like, far off, yeah, like grandiose, to use your word, thing, right? But a lot of times the climate solutions are the things that make our lives, like, and our cities much better. And so it it is really about that lived experience. I mean, part of this for me is also, you know, having spent uh, while living in LA at the beginning of my career, uh, it's driven by some of that frustration. It's it's around livability too. <laughs> I think that's a very, both of those are fine counterpoints or things to consider and to keep in mind while discussing this. And this light rail, a question of infrastructure being built in Seattle is maybe a fine point to launch into this climate industrialism uh, model that you set out. Because the thing that really bugged me about the light rail expansion, the Nori offices in Ballard, the light rail is coming, but it's not coming for I think more than a decade. And there's like two steps ahead of the actual building, one of which was planning. And the other one was design, both of which were four years. I was like, what is happening? I was asking my colleague, Siobhan, she used to work in cities and planning and was saying that a lot of this is NEPA and like making sure that environmental reviews are happening. I know there was a whole thing within the IRA about to what degree permitting reform is going to happen or not. I heard it got taken out. I'm sure a lot of this is NIMBY stuff. Wow, there's so many acronyms I just used. But <laughs> I, I just, why can't we build things? Like, why does it take that long to just lay some track? This is a technology that's over a century old. Why is it so hard? Yeah, you know, this is actually, this is a point that we both, I think, feel pretty strongly about. And, you know, we we just released this piece on climate industrialism. We opened with like, look at all these things that we built so quickly, right? Like yeah. from, I think, inception to open to the public, the Golden Gate Bridge in the early, like 19, I think 1930s, late 1920s, that was 15 years. And this was a hundred years ago, right? It's like, why is it taking the same amount of time to get the light rail from Seattle to Ballard, right? Or like longer. So we've done a lot to um, respond to safety issues and environmental hazards and all of these things. And I think that, at the time, there was a real a real need for that type of government response because it was it was a safety thing, right? But a lot of a lot of that infrastructure around permitting and review has gotten in the way of our ability to build, and I think it's actually really hurt the morale around the ability to build, right? Like we mm. talk to developers that are like, I don't even want to touch California, right? Because it takes so much longer to work there, right, and to build there, wow. and so. I think a real piece of like our climate industrialism sort of hypothesis is that a way to enable change, like there's so much talent and dollars and impatience around getting climate action on the ground, right? And like real solutions and like the cities that are going to really thrive in like the next couple of decades are the ones that are, you know, reforming their permitting process or, you know, states that are going to look at, you know, like reevaluate their environmental review process, right? CEQA has basically in California, that's our version of the environmental review process. And that's basically become a way to stop any development, right? And so there's, I think, a lot of opportunity, like we see this as a problem to be solved, right? And any problem to be solved is like, that's an opportunity. So 
like any city that is able to make it friendlier and easier to build like cheaper, faster, right. And, you know, still hold a standard for like safety and environmental quality. That's going to be like a place that really thrives in this era. One of our favorite quotes, I think I speak for Lynn on this also, is actually from a former mayor of Pittsburgh. His name is Bill Peduto. And he said, rather than putting out the red tape for new technologies, we should be rolling out the red carpet, right? And we think that that applies enormously to climate tech, right? And how that new generation is going to change this new generation of investments, how quickly it rolls out. You know, in in infrastructure, we speak, we always talk about on track, on budget and on time. You hardly ever meet those three, right? Find me a project that has. I think our uh, Second Avenue subway in New York City was originally conceived in like the 1940s and it opened, you know, four or five years ago. So uh, it's four stops to make you feel better about your Ballard situation in Seattle. But yeah, I I think that is a huge piece of how cities can actually reform this process is actually figuring out the regulatory process and working with companies to actually understand what are the needs that they have and what should the city change, right? Over the past many, many, many decades, right, over the past generation or two, we've put on band-aids to solve for a lot of the environmental and, and labor challenges that we've seen in our country, and frankly, you know, those Band-Aids don't fix the problem, right? You've got to sort of rip it off and start from scratch to a certain extent in terms of how you're looking at the regulatory framework. And that's where we think cities can actually, the cities that are going to be successful in this are those that partner with startups and with industry from the idea stage all the way to product market fit, all the way to commercialization and digging shovels into the ground and making sure that when you're digging, you're going fast. And a lot of that is startup speak, but I think cities are starting to incorporate a lot of this type of discussion as they think about simplifying permitting and zoning and the procurement process and really rolling out that red carpet. Do you have any sense historically when this change happened? I I associate a lot of this with progressives interest in the precautionary principle. And in fact, I think if you ask someone in a vacuum that was progressively inclined, would they prefer more or less regulation, they would say more without knowing even what it was being regulated or why. Does it have to be this way? Or could it be some other better way? So I have so there's like the there's the permitting and regulation side of things. And then there's some like, I think other historical trends that have really led to this. And Sonam is going to have more expertise on the permitting and regulation side. So I'm going to leave that to her. But I will say, you know, as we were leading up to releasing this climate industrialism piece, I was very deep in the history of industrialism. And we saw, I think this, um, like, historically, we've seen industrialism or industrialization, rather, and urbanization are super closely linked, right? Like you see, like, as soon as factories get built, that's when housing gets built. And that's when roads get laid down, you know, like you get that's when you get urban infrastructure. And that's when, you know, you have a bunch of employees that suddenly can afford to buy lunch or dinner, right? And then you get a service sector that arises and you get this like really beautiful organic fabric that springs up around industrial work, right? And that was like really exciting in the American Industrial Revolution. That went from like 1870 to 1950, let's say, right? There was a lot of problems with how they built in that time, though. Everything was built really fast, really cheap, to the point that it was dangerous, right? It was it was unsafe and it was not a nice place to live in a lot of in a lot of ways, right? And we don't even have to get into the working conditions, but that was 
all of those sort of social things aside, there was that really core piece that urbanization and industrialization went hand in hand. And since the 1950s, we've seen a huge shift in the American economy, right? We massively deindustrialized. You got a ton of people moving out to the suburbs. There was even this trend of ex-urbanization, which I just learned is just like moving far away from any urban community, not even the suburbs, right? And as that happened, like we started building out instead of building up, we saw that people in that process were less invested in, oh, the tax dollars that are going to, you know, this really vibrant urban community and are going to build the light rail or are going to like resurface our roads, whatever else. And so I think that you saw this huge decline and disinvestment in the idea of like the American downtown or the American Main Street, right? And I think that that's a large part of it. And we have to do it right this time, right? Like climate change isn't just going to be solved. Like it's going to be solved in part behind our computer screens, but it's not just going to be solved behind our computer screens, right? Like we need to actually act on information and plans and strategies and, you know, resource optimization. We have to do all that in the real world and hard and materials and physical technologies. Like that's all, that's all how we're going to get that job done, right? So if we get it right this time, I think that we can see this healthy industrialization and urban growth um, go hand in hand. And hopefully because the technologies uh, that we need for climate, like to respond to climate change, those technologies, they are inherently, they have to be clean technologies, right? And so we're hopefully not going to get old trope of London with all of its smog, you know, back during the first industrial revolution. So that's kind of like a historical sense. But I think, Sonam, you can give more of the um, modern permitting reform sense. But I would just say that it's been since like the 1950s. Hmm. Yeah, we basically built the interstate highway system, which was the last big undertaking, in my opinion, of American industrialism, right, or the American Industrial Revolution. And then we built all these passages to, you know, and we have the Model T and all. It was Eisenhower, right? That was like the. Yeah, exactly. Right. We have. We have roads literally to take people out of cities and into suburbs and urban sprawl and a whole host of other things that, you know, both Lynn and I really, really dislike. And that enabled people to move away from some of these challenges that had cropped up in these cities. And a lot of that, frankly, you know, people started having a sense of ownership of their place, right? As they moved to the suburbs, they moved into houses with white picket fences, they have owned cars, right? They've sort of had all of this physical goods that they called their own. And that sense of shared space and shared sort of lived experience, I think, started to decline. And when you do create that sense of ownership, you also end up with a lot of, you know, this is mine and I don't want this in my backyard, right? And that's how this whole formation around the NIMBYism movement really came to being. And I think that there is a lot of discussion frankly, particularly amongst people of our generation of how do we undo all of that, right? I often say the first way to undo all of that is actually, you know, not to sit behind your computer screen on Zoom uh, and in meetings all day, right? But to literally show up at your community board meeting at 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. or whatever it happens, right? And raise your voice and make your voice heard. And I think people, frankly, who want change need to be involved in those physical spaces to make that change happen. Hmm. How much of cities leading on climate change do you think are adaptation-based or actually removing carbon or decarbonizing in some way? What's the balance between these strategies? Yeah, we actually launched Parachute with a thesis that 
the equation is really messed up. <laughs> um, Maybe you should also, I kind of buried the lead a little bit. What is parachute too? And yeah, wrap it all um, around that. <laughs> why, why don't you start with the, why, why don't you start with the, what is parachute piece? And then I'll talk about the adaptation okay, versus deviation piece. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So yeah, uh, parachute is a research and storytelling project uh, where we are sharing climate solutions around or in cities around the world that make our cities more beautiful and livable and resilient because, you know, these changes to our environment are happening already and they're in the here and now and they affect people already like in their daily lives and in their homes, uh, whether or not that's been communicated to them. Right. And so we need to have solutions that can respond to that threat, you know, today and tomorrow. And uh, that's why we think adaptation resilience is a really important part of this equation. And, you know, mitigation, we're like, that is incredibly incredibly important but there's so much uh talent and resources going towards it right now so we wanted to to highlight um some of the opportunity around adaptation and resilience and someone can sort of give a sense of why that equation is so imbalanced yeah so so i think we're we're in an age where people know that there's climate change whether or not they believe it i think is a different story right and whether or not they believe the science behind it uh frankly has been politicized particularly over the past you know uh, five to 10 years for a lot of reasons. But again, you know, when you walk out of your door and there is a, you know, foot of water <laughs> that you have to wade through to get to the subway, even if it's open, that's climate change, right? In action. And I think one of the things that we focus on is that 93% of all climate finance, right? Money that is invested into dealing with climate change goes to mitigation. 7% of this goes to adaptation. And we think that there's a huge mismatch, right? Climate change is here and now, and we got to do something about it today, not by 2050, right? 2050 is another 30 years away. Like, good luck to you, right? <laughs> you know, walking through your one foot of water every single day as you're trying to drop your kids off to school. So, so we think that there's a huge opportunity there. And actually, just last week, we talked a lot about the importance of flipping the script, right, on a lot of this and building for resilience. I think Hurricane Ian uh, is a very real and live example of that. You know, in Florida, there were over 100 deaths, about $75 billion of economic losses. And these are just early estimates, right, as insurance companies and governments and people are actually assessing the damage. But I think one of the challenges that we see is that there's this entire discussion of build back better. Well, what does better actually mean, right? I think that there are a lot of, frankly, differences in opinion and tactically how better is implemented in the real world. And that's where we think building back better actually means building back with resiliency in mind. One stat, I, again, I used to, I've spent my entire career in this space, right? But one stat that I always refer to, particularly for the newbies, which we're, we're very happy to have you all, is that for every $1 we invest in pre-disaster mitigation, we save $6 on the back end in post-disaster losses, right? So we've really got to put our money where our mouth is wow. and it will generate returns, multifold, right? <laughs> These are VC type returns that we're talking about here, right? It will generate returns multifold, but a lot of that is starting with good information and data about where your climate impacts are. And there are a number of companies that are helping cities and governments do that. You know, Flood Map and Cloud to Street or, or, or uh, OpenStreetMap are a couple of the ones that come to mind. Um, 
thinking critically about where you're building. And this gets into a much longer discussion about managed retreat, but you know, keeping in mind that if you're building on the same stretch of sandy beaches <laughs> that stand in hurricane pads, you know, year in, year out, maybe you shouldn't be building there, right? Beaches should be used for suntans <laughs> in good weather, right? And as coastal protection barriers in bad weather, not necessarily for multi-million dollar beachfront homes, right? And then the Third is around getting your finances in order, right? So again, putting your money where your mouth is. And then the fourth is around actually using resilient materials and design principles to build sustainably because anything that we build today, hopefully will be around in 30 years. And then frankly, most likely, right? The average life of a of a built environment stretches into the hundreds of years. So those are just some of the things that we think about when we go out to these communities, talk to policymakers, talk to entrepreneurs, talk to nonprofit organizations and community members about how to build, you know, better livable communities. All very fascinating. There's so many angles to take. The most at hand for me is that I've read a fair amount about federal insurance subsidies or policy that encourages unsafe building. I've seen things where no private insurer would insure various types of beachfront or wildfire property. And yet they they face some sort of political pressure. I don't know who's lobbying for this or how this happens, but then they will get um, no... There's like a market solution here that seemingly everyone, the conservatives, no reason to oppose. The market is unwilling to insure this dangerous, risky property. And yet the government has stepped in and encouraged risky behavior. Am I right about that? I'm seeing smiles. I'm hoping that's still true. Yes. And part of the smiles is that I am in in some ways a perpetrator of this issue. No, no, no. It's okay. But it's like actually a point of, I guess, slight embarrassment for me. But I, um, I talk about it very openly because it's so relevant, especially to being in the climate space. I bought my first home in Big Bear in California. It is in the San Bernardino National Forest, right? It's a ski community. I bought it when I was like, you know, I'm like, I need a COVID cabin. This was early COVID days. I love to ski. I was like, this is perfect, right? I went to go get insurance when I was closing on the home and couldn't get it anywhere. Had to get it through the state government, like California's fire insurance program. As soon as I put in the zip code, every private company was like, absolutely not. We will not even look at this. And so I had to get it through the state. And this year, and you know, like, it's actually been this like point of stress. Every, you know, fall, I'm like, oh my God, like it's wildfire season. And it's been something that weighs on me. And I didn't anticipate it having such a huge mental and like emotional impact. And then Sonam knows this, this past, I think it was September. Sorry, the August and September are blending because that's when we were traveling to do all of our parachute research. So it was a different, it was a different city every week. But, you know, just this fall, a wildfire broke out in Big Bear and got to within a mile of my home. And, you know, it was very stressful. I was, you know, really emotionally coming to terms with the fact that I could lose my home in that process. And I've been working in climate and I actually, you know, have done panels and events around managed retreat. And this is the first time that it really, really hit home for me. Right. And Big Bear is interesting because you get a lot of folks that live locally and, you know, work in the service sector. And then, you know, it's a ski town. That's really what drives the economy. And then you get, you know, homeowners that have a lot of money and can buy a second home or, you know, like have the ability to work remotely. I'm very lucky that I get to work remotely and, you know, be in the mountains. But I think that there's this like real conversation of, you know, as we 
you know, if we're not going to build up and build dense climate friendly cities, we're going to build out and then people are going to get pushed to this wildland urban interface. And, um, you know, you get these communities that are very wealthy, um, you know, like on the along the beach, but you know, then you get communities like Paradise, California, right? And Paradise, you know, was completely destroyed. They're actually rebuilding right now. But it begs the question of like, you know, where should we be rebuilding? How should we be rebuilding? And where should we be building in the first place? Because oftentimes we're actually ended up ending up pushing a lot of our most climate vulnerable communities already right into these areas where you can't get insurance. You, like you can't get private insurance. And it's like, how do we deal with that? Yeah. And, and I would even add, I actually started my career at Goldman Sachs doing infrastructure finance. And one of the very first deals that I worked on was a bond issuance for catastrophe risk bonds uh, for the state of Florida. Right. And I was 22. I had like no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Fresh out of college, like interested in the stuff, but no idea what I was doing. And the more I learned about this, right, like here we are trying to finance a bond product so that the state of Florida can ultimately pay out <laughs> insurance claims that are not covered by FEMA um, and NFIP, which is the National Flood Insurance Program, or by private insurers, right, who are the companies that traditionally should be offering these products. And yeah, I learned about this. And I was like, this is really dumb. Right? We shouldn't be doing this. And again, this was in you know 2009, 2010, right? And here we are more than 10 years later, like literally having the same conversation, right? And a lot of this is political discussions, right? FEMA tries to change its flood maps and they get pushback from every Tom, Dick and Harry politician saying, oh, we don't want to be designated as a FEMA flood zone because that will drive down our property values, right? And we don't want that to happen. So there's this perverse incentive where we don't want to, we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. And frankly, a lot of that comes back to, frankly, hyper-local politics. But to bring this out on a more national and frankly global scale, insurance as a product is extremely important as we go forward, right? Um, particularly given the increase in disasters um, that we're seeing year in, year out, right? Disasters cost about um, $200 billion a year globally. About 90% of these losses are actually in developing countries. Uh, 90% of, of the lives that are impacted are in developing countries. And we've got to sort of figure out where the risk is and who needs the most help, but also building financial resilience, reserve funds for strong social safety nets that can protect the people who are most impacted by climate change. I will point out, you know, at the World Bank, I used to work there after Goldman. And one of the things that kind of made up for all of the things that I did with Florida cat risk bonds was actually developing a disaster risk financing and insurance program for the country of Pakistan, right, which has significant climate risk. A third of the country was just flooded just a couple of months ago over the summer. And, you know, it's in partnership with the private sector, it was in partnership with Munich Re. And it actually went around the country to figure out what is the value of your infrastructure assets and your public assets. How do we, one, again, collect that data to put a value to that, uh, to that information and to these assets. And then three, ensure those assets, right, as a way to protect those assets and frankly, protect the balance sheet, which is extremely necessary when your country is a third underwater, right? And you've got to figure out how to pay for things. So there are, again, movements in this space, but we think these types of efforts need to be, you know, 10x to deal with some of the challenges at hand. How much room do you think there is for cities to become much more politically 
important or to have more responsibility to make larger decisions. Uh, Lynn and I were talking a little bit about Balaji Srinivasan's uh, The Network State book, which by the way, that is a really spicy book. I did not anticipate <laughs> how, just, just how much spiciness would be included in it, but there's a lot. Oh, I'm thinking about people like Paul Romer and the Startup Cities Institute and Charter Cities. Is there an intersection with climate here? Is that an inappropriate link that I'm drawing? No. No. So this is this is like, I guess, Sonam and I have some equally, I think, spicy conversations around startup cities because we have, you know, different, like we have like wildly different opinions on startup cities and their role, you know, in society. But this is actually in some ways what led us to the climate industrialism thesis, oh, I guess, cool. to sort of bring it full circle. You know, I think that here there's a few points that we really, really do agree on. And the first is that, you know, the network state hypothesis, right? Like there's this idea that, you know, talent is going to find new places to live and it's going to aggregate around values and, you know, lifestyles, right? I think. And so I think that one of the things that is driving people wanting to move away from places, right? Like we saw this, you know, during COVID, some movement from, let's say, San Francisco to other other areas, like, let's say, Miami, right? And a lot of that is driven by the fact that there isn't as much investment happening in a lot of cities, right? And so if you can, especially like, let's say, Rust Belt cities, right? If you can bring this sort of idea of tactical urbanism and reinvestment and drive dollars and talent into existing urban environments, you can actually like almost kind of make a startup city in um, in the like a cultural startup city, I guess, in some ways, in um, cities that have, you know, seen these like industrial booms and then industrial busts and are sort of looking for a way to rebrand and re-identify themselves and, and draw in new talent. And so, you know, if we build for climate industries, right, like if we are investing in advanced purchasing agreements from the city end and policies that make it really friendly to build in cities and to then like build a factory, not just infrastructure, right, but like also a factory and hire people and do all of these things in a city and like housing, then you're going to get people that want to, you know, there's so much talent in climate and people are going to be like, oh, I want to move to Detroit and I want to start my company there and I want to do my manufacturing there and I'm going to hire people and, you know, you can get this organic urban fabric that arises. And so I think that there's this sort of like climate industrialism is in some ways our response to the this, you know, network state idea. And there's a very similar proposition can be made for completely new startup cities, right? But then the value proposition is, is the same for both. It's like a strong business case for cities. Then there's already so much excitement, so much mobilization, so much in terms of talent and funding that's going towards climate that this is the moment to me, right? Like this is the wave to ride <laughs> for cities. So I think that there's a piece around the, like, the cost too that you had brought up earlier during our discussion that I really loved. I have very different opinions on startup cities, but again, much longer conversations. So I will I will reserve that, right? But I will say, right, given the rate of urbanization, and I, you know, we started this conversation with the question of why cities, right? When you're getting from 4.2 billion people today to 6.7 billion people in 2050 living in cities, we've got to put all these people somewhere, right? And we'd love to put them in dense, you know, we'd love to put them in places that look a lot more like. Manhattan than frankly places that look like suburban Houston, right? Which is frankly where a lot of that growth is happening. And I think the concept of startup cities to me is actually more around how do you use technologies that a lot of the people in the startup cities 
conversation or make are talking about, right? How do you actually use the technologies that exist and are going to exist over the next 10, 20, 30 years and apply them to the existing framework of large global cities around the world? How do you take things like pervious concrete, mass timber construction, modular housing, e-bikes, right? Much more sustainable forms of transportation and layer them on to the existing infrastructure. And that is where I think I think a lot about technology and its ability to reduce the cost of city building in order to accommodate the growth of cities as well as the sustainability of cities, right? So ideally, we'd still keep that same ratio, right? Cities occupy about 3% of the land mass of Earth today. Like, you know, we don't necessarily want that to be 4, 5, 6, 10% as we urbanize. But how do we do that? Again, with smart technology, smart tools, and drive down that cost of city building. I think it's fair to ask why there couldn't be private cities. We're so spoiled with technology, right? You have private companies who start and they change the way that we live, you know, often for the better, not always, but often. I think people only have one model for private cities, and it's basically company towns where people were right. uh, you know, paid in script and had to go to the company store and you could never get out of debt. It's like basically like industrial sharecropping. It's not good. Right. right. But I think we're at a point now where hopefully that would not always be the case. And there are some circumstances where the term I've heard for this is residual claimancy. So you have some sort of owner who has an incentive to, to create a productive and healthy space for people to, to live and work. And that hopefully the incentives would be set up such that they would be encouraged to foster economic and uh, human well-being within these spaces. Is there a role for that? Is this fantastical? Maybe both? So yeah, I guess that this is actually like, this is the area where we get into some of the spice around my and sort of opinion differences. But like, I, I think that there is a role for that. I'm really, I'm personally pretty excited about the idea of startup cities. I think it's also important to be really critical of where startup cities have gone wrong in the past. And you know, the idea of cities or areas that have been, you know, solely owned by companies uh, in Southern California, you know, I grew up not too far from Irvine, California, and you can really tell that that was, you know, like Irvine Ranch was very, very private, <laughs> right? And so I think that there are models, though, that are emerging that are really exciting. I mean, one of the developers that uh, Sonam and I are both really, um, really happy to see uh, make huge headway is cul-de-sac um, in Tempe, Arizona. They oh, are yeah, building... I've seen that. I went to ASC yeah. and I remember seeing that like as I was passing through that this is getting started. Yeah. Is it going now? They are fully building. Uh, I actually did a site visit on their construction site uh, when I visited there a couple months ago. We have a field note coming out or a street note, sorry, coming out that sort of sums up our visit and what we learned. But they are doing some like absolutely incredible stuff. And I think that what they're doing really well can and should be taken as like the standard for like how if startup cities are going to are going to be successful, I think that they really need to take um, a few pages out of the cul-de-sac book, right? And without getting into too many details, there's a lot of there's a lot of community engagement, there's a lot of working with the Tempe city government as well, right? And they're, you know, they they went to a lot of trouble to make sure that they could, you know, get the right regulatory assistance and frameworks in place so that they could build, you know, America's first car-free community. And it's going to be a really beautiful, incredible place to live. I'm very excited after touring the site to see it come to fruition. And, you know, I would happily live in a city that was, you know, a really large cul-de-sac, you know, development. And so how we do things matters, right? Like the product matters, but how we get there matters. And I think cul-de-sac is a perfect example of that. And I think that it's that type of innovation and 
especially, you know, rethinking the process of startup cities that is, um, and you know, like how we finance them again, like if we are putting down climate industries as a way to attract a variety of, you know, talent and financing and, you know, create a, a really robust economy and, you know, built environment. I think that that's like, that's a way to do this right. I, I think that there's a lot of space for experimentation. I generally agree. I think the one place where I think we really, really, really need to be mindful of is how these cities are financed, right? Like nine times out of 10, startup cities are founded by, you know, some wealthy developer, some rich person who wants to like put a stake into the ground, literally, right? And physically put a stake into the ground. And these end up being, you know, contrived utopias, And frankly, I don't think the vast majority of people, not just in the United States, but in the world, want to live in that type of place, right? So we've really got to think about what are the affordability mechanisms that we are putting into place? And frankly, again, government has a role to play in this, right? When there's new developments coming up, are we making sure that nobody's being displaced? Are we making sure that the buildings that are coming up, that the units have affordability mechanisms put into place for a variety of income levels. You know, if we're talking about climate industrialism, again, it's not just people building bits, right? It's it's people literally building atoms, right? You've got to have folks who are working to put up solar panels and wind turbines and all sorts of hard infrastructure and bring that manufacturing and sort of those good middle-class jobs back to um, some of these communities. And Ultimately, you know, the wage levels and the rent levels have to go hand in hand, right? And one of the challenges with cities today, especially if you look at a place like where I am, right? I live in New York City, I've written on housing policy and all sorts of things, right? It, it costs $4,000 to get a one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan these days. Most people do not earn that kind of money, right? And I think that is the challenge of how can you create communities that are close to transit, which is what I love about cul-de-sac is literally on a train line that takes people up and down Tempe and into Phoenix, right? In a, in a high growth environment. And uh, again, uses great technologies to drive down that cost so that that affordability can then be passed down to the end consumer and the renter or buyer in some of these places uh, and are again matched with the, the wage levels that a lot of the climate industrialism jobs are going to bring. Well, thanks so much for for being here and giving me so many things to think about. Uh, Len and Sonam, it was a uh having you thanks ross yeah great to chat yeah Yeah. this is a lot of fun (laughs) i'm I'm glad you had a good time and links to those things are in the show notes too i'll put this at the at the top so people can make sure to read um your excellent new article the age of climate industrialism links to their writing and work is in the show notes and thank you so much for listening if you like what we do please give us a great rating and review on apple Podcasts or spotify share this with a friend who like cities? I don't know. <laughs> or climate. <laughs> climate? Yeah. All of the above. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com. Follow us on social media. and We will catch you next time.